Welcome to the CEC report for the 5th of April. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, Italy proves bail-in is a disaster. Australian Treasury should come clean on their plans for it. And the European Union, you can check out but you can never leave. So firstly, Italy proves bail-in is a disaster. Australian Treasury should come clean on their plans for it. Now, uh, the global situation is really at a crunch point, which is why bail-in, which is the procedure whereby instead of banks being bailed out, they take some of the capital on their balance sheet, which is in the form of investments um, that ordinary citizens buy, such as bonds, and in many cases, in most cases across the world, deposits are a part of those funds that would be bailed in uh, to make the bank solvent again. And it is, as I say, becoming a big issue because of the crunch point that we're nearing. And just to give a quick uh, assessment of that, you have the warning uh, that from Citigroup that the United States will enter technical de uh, recession, I should say, by December. And that report stated we are only 15 minutes to midnight. You also have warnings across the board of a European slowdown, which is getting very grave. Um, there are new warnings about the extent of the derivatives holdings by US banks that are you know, exploding again as they were in the lead up to the last global financial crisis. You have the potential implications financially of a hard Brexit, and we'll talk about that in the second segment. You have the housing bubble. There are new reports out from the International Monetary Fund on the emerging market sector, but also the uh, housing bubble nearing crisis point in countries like Australia and Canada. Uh, and I wanted to mention, talk a bit about the news that we reported in uh, a press release this week and which was broken by John Adams and Martin North on their uh, YouTube channel, which you can see for more info on that. And that is about the Australian Treasury having held meetings with, and this was done uh, surreptitiously, it wasn't, certainly wasn't announced, but they held meetings with various European governments to quiz them on how they handled uh, their banking crisis mm -hmm. during the 2008 GFC. Our press release asked the question, did they go there to get an assessment of the bail-in policy, which is the, the European version of that is called the Banking Recovery and Resolution Directive, which has been in place since January 2016. We believe that is the most likely thing because in its February assessment of our economy, the International Monetary Fund demanded a full statutory bail-in Australia, in Australian law uh, because while we have uh, in the current legislation passed February last year by APRA a backdoor way to bail-in deposits and across the board bail-in of bail-in bonds of course, yeah. uh, it's not a full statutory capability to just grab it all and run at that point of a crash. Yeah, for the new, view for the new viewers, Elisa, I think we should explain just a little bit of what bail-in is. You explained it, Cursor, you know, at the start of the uh, segment, but look, what we're talking about is basically people losing their deposits, whether those be through investments or whatever, where the banks, instead of being bailed out like they were in the global financial crisis, where governments came and put literally, in the case of the US, trillions of dollars into bailing out the banks and that money didn't go into the productive economy, they're saying, we're not going to do that anymore. Instead, we're going to reduce the liabilities of the banks, that is, your deposits, and we're mm. going to take them. And this is what's happened in Italy. Yeah. And it's going to crash the system. And whilst our officials have denied that bail-in exists in any capacity, uh, particularly in terms of taking deposits. But that's what's on the cards for, for Australia. Well, it certainly is, and a government senator has admitted it. Senator Stoker uh, has admitted, as we've said previously on the show, 
in a letter to constituents that the legislation uh, passed by April last year facilitates bail-in, those were her words, facilitates bail-in according to the International Monetary Fund and the Bank for International Settlements model, which is exactly what Europe, the US, New Zealand, Canada and other countries have in place. Um, so this is actually a big issue, bail-in though, because mm -hmm. the crisis is coming and the authorities are scrambling because the toolbox that they would normally use to deal with a crisis I mean, after 2008, they've used all the, um, exhausted all the mechanisms that they're available with interest rates, with quantitative easing. Uh, some people are saying quantitative easing will never have the same impact again, um, that monetary policy is dead. Bail-in is being shown to be a disaster, as we'll talk about very soon, including the fact that um, banks in Europe that are having to build up the levels of bail-in debt on their books, it's causing them great financial strife, so the solution is causing even bigger problems. But the real issue before, because we want to take a slight diversion onto the housing bubble by way of update here in Australia, the real issue is, if you really want to resolve this, is fixing the split that's taken place between the financial sector and the physical economic sector. Because mm. we've got all this speculation that's mm. gone blown out of proportion to the growth of the real economy. And the, the housing bubble is a perfect example of that. So we'll go through some of this. Um, some charts here which are new. Um, the, this first one here is from Core Logic Data showing the median house values. Um, and I think you know that, that pretty much speaks for itself in the collapsing, especially dramatically the collapse in Sydney and Melbourne of house prices. Uh, then you have the, these are asking prices. So when people list their houses, this is what they're asking for. And you can see in the red there the changes that are occurring dropping that people are already... Um, so 10% for Sydney, 9.9% to be exact, you know, 7.3% for Melbourne, right? And this is what's, this is over a 12-month change and we're, we're talking about the potential of up to 20% or mm. more. Oh, yeah, there's definitely. No, there's no bottom to this once it starts. Um, That's the trouble. The next chart here shows listings, and this is SQM research, I should say, but listings that increase, so these are the number of houses that are currently listed, they increase 25% year-on-year in Melbourne. 8.5% uh, on the monthly basis, which is a big rise. And what this means, it, well, it's mainly a result of not new listings, but property, old properties that are not selling. Um, now, these charts coming up are from Macro Business, from Leith Van Onselen. Um, this first one shows, well, well, in general, housing price, the housing price decline is the third longest since the early 80s and the deepest ever. And this first chart shows the comparison between Australia and the United States, Ireland, Spain and the UK during the global financial crash. Now at this stage of the process on this chart, you can see the black line there is Australia. This is 18 months in, so that comparison, we've, we're only 18 months into it. But in comparison, the rate at which we're falling is relatively steep according to this uh, analysis. And then the second graph, you can see the decline of Melbourne and Sydney. Melbourne's the black dotted line and Sydney's the orange dotted line. Melbourne outpaced, the decline outpaced all others but the UK at this point in, and Sydney is beating both the US and Spain. Um, then you have finder.com, which has just revealed that 9% of mortgage holders are in severe mortgage stress, meaning they are barely able to make or are behind in their repayments. 40% uh, live month to month but can't find enough, and you can see that in this chart here. So, you know, they're just scratching by. And this is at current interest rate. This is not with looking at an interest rate increase. Mm. 
Morgan Stanley has just put out an analysis saying that there is no turnaround in sight for the housing market and they're expecting a 20% fall peak to trough. Um, but as you said, you know, others are forecasting much bigger than that. The whole, this whole thing could go because you've got the speculative hot air that has to come out of this system. And as we've made it very clear, that's part of the recovery process. But yeah. you have to make sure people can stay in their homes while that's, that's first, going on. Yeah, well, that's one of the major points that we're bringing to this federal election, Elise, is a debt moratorium on homes and farms, right? Like, we cannot have a situation with, when you've got a housing crisis like we've got of hundreds of thousands of families being put out on the street because they can't afford their mortgage. Mm. And that's a major policy platform of what we've been talking about. And it's interesting, you know, we've just had the budget, we've just had the reply by Bill Shorten. Nothing about the banking system. It's like the Royal Commission's been used as a giant vacuum cleaner to say, we've got no problems in our banking system, right? Bill Shorten didn't bother talking about a national bank or any of these sorts of issues. Neither did Morrison. So the most important issues that we're talking about on this program and what we talk about as a political party aren't discussed by the major parties mm. because they have no intention mm. of solving the problems in the economy. So what do we say? We've got a five-point program. First of all, we've got to have Glass-Steagall break up the banks, separate out the, the normal necessary banking that we need for our economy from all the speculative investment banking, insurances, financial advice and so forth, separate all that out from just the basic banking. So we actually have a strongly regulated banking system that is protected. Secondly, we've got to go with a national bank, like we had with the old Commonwealth Bank, where you create credit and direct credit into the productive economy. And whilst you're doing that, you have a debt moratorium and home foreclosures and farm foreclosures keep people in, uh, in their homes and on their farms. Right, and then we go with large-scale, very large-scale infrastructure development, like large-scale water projects, large-scale high-speed rail, space program, a great deal of uh, large-scale infrastructure projects in order to be able to re rebuild the physical productive economy and put people into high-paying jobs. And finally, we have to join in this is part of an international cooperative program like joining in uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. Work with other countries both on the development of infrastructure but also in the, in the um, you know, rebuilding or restructuring of international finance because mm. there is going to be a global financial crisis mark too yeah. and we have to be participating with the, internationally with the solution. That's right and that's a, this is where Glass-Steagall is critical and on the top of our list right now because it's a preventative measure because if you separate away all the speculation when it blows apart it's not going to affect yeah. what you've you know, sequestered away, the you know, real economy which is people's pay packets and you know the day-to-day -day functioning. Um, so we want to remind people that our legislation for Glass-Steagall is being examined by the Senate Economics Legislation Committee. And as of today, there's seven days left to go, so there's less by the time you're watching it, if you're watching it online on YouTube. Uh, definitely make your submission. This is your last chance to, and demand hearings actually, because this committee should be hearing from experts um, this is our last ch chance to really make our voices heard on this uh, before the election and so forth. Now we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about the details of the Italy bail-in situation. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about Italy proves bail-in is a disaster and the Australian Treasury should fess up on their plans for full-scale bail-in laws. Um, so I want to tell the story of what happened in Italy um, 
in mid-2014 when a regional bank in Abruzzo, by the name of Turkas Bank, which had been in administration for a while, was bailed out by the Italian, uh, well not by the Italian government, but by, the, by Italy's Interbank Deposit Insurance Fund, which is actually a private fund contributed to by the banks. Now the European Commission contested that decision on the basis that it comprised state aid, which is illegal under European Commission laws. However, as I just said, this uh, deposit insurance body is a private body, but the European Commission said it was acting with a public mandate to protect depositors, right? Now, in November to December 2015, so over a year later, the European Commission had been um, cogitating on you know, what kind of punishment was due for this bailout that Italy wasn't allowed to conduct. And as this U European Commission decision was being finalised, uh, the fate of four troubled regional banks, Banca Etruria, Nuova Carife, Banca Marche and Caracchetti, was being decided. So these four banks were in trouble. And the EC put the decision down to rule that the Turkish bailout had been illegal and ordered the funds to be paid back with interest right at the same time. So the four troubled banks could not be bailed out with using Italy's quite legitimate deposit insurance fund. Therefore, they had to be bailed in. And what that meant is that 768 million euros of subordinate bonds, the lower ranking bonds, were confiscated to make the bank solvent. Half of those bonds were owned by 10,500 Italian savers, ordinary citizens, pensioners, etc. The EU was demanding an even greater bail-in, um, but Italy protested. I mean, there was an instance of a, and there were more, but right straight away, within a month or so, the news came out that a 68-year-old retiree who'd lost 110,000 euros, his entire life savings, and he left, he committed suicide. He left a suicide note saying, look, I lost everything. Mm. I'm taking my own life. Um, so the result of this is, according to Italian banker Roberto Nicastro, and he was the caretaker of those four banks that went bust, um, he said, look, it was a contained crisis, but the European Commission's intervention unleashed systemic contamination. And he went on to say the depreciation of the non-performing loans of the four banks down to 17% of their nominal value put pressure on the entire system accelerating the crises of other financial institutions. From the Veneto banks to Monte de Paschi, the four banks were worth less than 1% of the entire banking sector in Italy. And yet, that episode blocked the issue of bonds for the entire system in the following period. And this has pretty much become a precedent European-wide because no bank can be bailed, in, uh, bailed out, I should say, without having at least a partial bail-in or some kind of bail-in first. But here is the zinger. On the 19th of March this year, the European Court of Justice ruled that the European <laughs> Commission acted illegally uh -huh. when it said that Italy could not bail out these banks. So all of this was for nothing. Uh, and Italy's now seeking compensation. They've had this trial going through the courts for a while. So that decision just goes to prove that the system of bail-in doesn't work and it's being imposed externally to stop countries defending the public interest, um, the public uh, mandate of deposits and so it forth. It just goes to prove how desperate the banks and the government supporting these banks are to prop up their system, Alisa, that mm. they'll even go to a legal means to demand that 
ordinary people uh, sacrificed for the in the name of protecting the financial stability of the mm. system. Australia is no different. That's Australia right. is absolutely no different. We've passed laws to allow this to happen in this country and people don't realise that. Mm. So, and I wanted to mention one other thing which is in regard to our Glass-Steagall solution which is the alternative to having bail-in. Um, this Senate uh, Legislation Committee that we talked about earlier has received a number of prominent submissions and I wanted to mention one uh, submitted by Mrs Alfeka Mutadi, who's a macroeconomist with 25 years experience at the International Monetary Fund. And she says in her submission, since retirement, I've been working with a coalition of partners on the urgent need to reinstate Glass-Steagall, uh, in the United States, that is. And she said, she just put a number of points with backup information. During Glass-Steagall's 66-year history, there was never a systemic failure, but nine years after we got rid of it, all hell broke loose. Uh, she said the replacement US Dodd-Frank legislation has been a disaster. It hasn't done anything. The source of dysfunction is Wall Street's undue political influence in the policies and operations of the US Fed, Treasury and its regulatory agencies. You could say the same here. And she's pointed out that this new financial architecture we now have, which we're just talking about, is completely untested and there's a new crash bearing down. Mm. Um, and no doubt there's others of that standard, but... I think the key point here is that if Australia were to go with Glass-Steagall, which we could force to a head um, with upcoming elections putting extra heat on MPs, yep. um, this could have global ramifications. A lot of international support all over the world. Every country has support for this. Uh, the only people who don't support it, of course, is the banks. Well, that's right, which is a good reason to advocate for it. Hmm. Um, so we've got to stop again, but we'll be right back to discuss Brexit. Welcome back to the CEC report. Now we're discussing the European Union. You can check out, but you can never leave. Uh, now, before we get back to that, I want to plug the Australian Alert Service, our weekly publication, because everything we've talked about and will talk about on today's show is in detail in that publication. So if you haven't already, call us for a free copy, or if you have already, call us and get involved um, to a greater degree. Now, you can check out, but you can never leave. That headline, of course, inspired by Hotel California, is based on the fact that no, no country has yet really left the European Union. Now, we hope that that will change, and who knows what will happen, whether the um, uh, UK will crash out of the European Union on the 12th of April, uh, maybe May and Corbyn do reach a deal for a negotiated exit, I don't know. Um, there's a big push for an extension uh, of about a year in length by which to delay it. But the main reason for that is that a, people are making a big push to um, uh, have, another, <coughs> excuse me, have another referendum. Um, and this is why I'm going to go through some details here because uh, in other cases where referendums have been retaken, they've always um, failed to cause the exit from the European Union. So I'll mm -hmm. give you a couple of examples here. Uh, only Greenland's the only country that has actually left, but um, with strings attached, and it voted itself out in 1982, but it still has treaty obligations to the European Union as an ex autonomous external territory of EU member Denmark. Um, no other national referendum to leave the EU or to vote down an EU constitutional treaty has ever been allowed to stand. Denmark voted against the Maastricht Treaty, the precursor to the EU, in 1992. Um, but it was offered concessions such as keeping its own currency and it took a re-vote and approved the treaty. 
Uh, Ireland had two referenda rejecting the Treaty of Nice and Treaty of Lisbon, which were steps to EU expansion and full EU control over sovereignty, um, but overturned those decisions, having, holding new referenda a year later after scare campaigns. And France and the Netherlands both rejected the European Constitution initially with referenda. Um, that, that constitution was an update of Maastricht. Um, but the EU ended up simply renaming the constitution and signed it anyway. Uh, the French even amended their own constitution to allow it to be ratified without a referendum. So every effort has been made um, to stop that happening. And in the case of Britain, uh, I think you know the sheer incompetence of Theresa May and her friends of not negotiating a Brexit is because you know they wanted to drag this thing out and people are so annoyed and frustrated that most likely if they go back to another referendum, Brexit won't be upheld. Yeah, that's right, Lisa. I mean, you have to look at the history of this over the entire period that you've had the European Union, you've had the, the, this entity that has stripped away the sovereignty of all the countries that have been involved in. And one of the things people may not realise is that when you join, when a country joins the, the um, EU, unless it somehow um, uh, negotiates it, like you saw here with um, Denmark, mm. they're going to smash up their old printing presses for currency. They have no resolve, no capability of going back and printing their own currency again. And as we see with Italy, you know, they have yeah. to abide by the rules of the European Commissions, and even if they're wrong. So the main point of the, the, the Maastricht Treaty is to destroy the sovereignty of nation states, to try and mm -hmm. meld all these very unique nations into one big uh, uh, entity where there's no sovereignty amongst the individual parts. And, and that comes right down to the, into the people. Mm. And that's what they're trying, I was going to say, that's what they're trying to hook us into yeah. by getting us to sign up to the full bail-in regime. Yeah. That's the same banking standard. Same. And yeah. I wanted to mention derivatives because um, there was already a deal that was made between the UK and the European Union to allow British-based derivatives clearing houses to continue to operate in the European Union after Brexit. Um, but that being said, derivatives uh, represent such a massive, you know, more than one quadrillion dollar bubble, and they are so volatile, so highly interconnected and so uh, unpredictable that even if the clearinghouses can still function in the event of a hard Brexit, um, anything can go wrong and the slightest thing can blow this whole thing and that's why there's a great degree of consternation at the moment over what is going to happen with Brexit. Mm. Look, I think globally the issue is Glass-Steagall the, and the sovereignty of nations and this is where it's a political fight. It's not a financial, it's not a banking issue, it's a political issue of what is the role of banks and banking in our country. And this is what the old Labor Party actually stood up against you know, Curtin and Chifley in the war years and prior to that, you know, the formation of the Commonwealth Bank. The idea was to have a sovereign banking institution that could protect the interests and develop the country. And that's not what's in Maastricht in the European Union. That's not what bail-in's all about. It's all about, you know, looting the citizen, breaking up sovereignty of nation states, something that we just do not support. Mm. Yep, and this, these policies will help us to realign the productive sector with the financial system again yep, and put right. the financial system within reasonable bounds mm. and do you what it was designed to do. need to have a financial system and banks that function yeah. but not a, not a speculative casinos. No. So make sure to make your submission, 
call in for an alert and join us again next week.